Hi, I'm Kevin Barrett, and you're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. Today's show features two interviews and a sermon. The first interview is a conversation on Press TV about the changing strategic situation in the Middle East, a.k.a. West Asia. The second interview is a Radio Islam discussion of baby formula shortages as signs of the apocalypse. And finally, we will end with my sermon, or chutzpah, on the cure for mass formation psychosis. If you like this kind of radio, please go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack link. Iran's President Abraham Raisi has visited Oman. Not only does this trip build upon the brotherly ties that exist between the two countries, they discuss regional issues. Iran's President has said that regional countries should solve their problems and that foreign powers should not interfere and leave the region altogether. In this edition of the Spotlight, we will look at the relationship between these two countries and look at the role that Iran plays when it comes to other countries in the region, including problem areas like Palestine and the presence of foreign forces. First, let me introduce our guest for this edition of the Spotlight. Expert in West Asian Affairs, Kevin Barrett, joins us from Madison. Also joining us is journalist and political analyst, Said Mohsen Abbas, who joins us from Islamabad. Welcome to you both. Uh, let me first start with you, if I may, Kevin Barrett, and uh, ask you about uh, the visit by Iran's president to Oman. Uh, it was pretty wide in terms of the uh, MOUs that were signed, 12 agreements, uh, cooperation agreements from what we understand. So in terms of trade, it was always obviously very fruitful. And uh, prior to that, they revived the gas pipeline that was in the works for quite some time. Um, how do you see this relationship in terms of uh, its significance, especially for the region altogether? Well, this is a very good move uh, for Iran, Oman, and the whole region. Uh, the 12 cooperation agreements uh, go uh, cover uh, all kinds of ground. And as you suggested, uh, one of the most important, probably the most important, is that gas pipeline issue. That's been in the works for well over a decade. And, of course, the, the Western powers, well, that's, that's a euphemism, really, for the United States, which is largely under Israeli control when it comes to U.S. Mideast policy, has been blocking it and fight, trying to find ways to make sure it doesn't happen. And now it may be that the uh, Americans are of two minds. On the one hand, of course, they're still uh, brutally sanctioning Iran. They're being completely unreasonable in their JCPOA negotiations. And uh, they're obviously still under the thumb of the Zionists. But on the other hand, they have a huge problem on their hands in Ukraine, where contrary to what the Western media tells us, uh, Russia is achieving its objectives in this special military operation. And at, at this point, with energy prices soaring and Europe trying to find a way to live without Russian gas and oil, but gas being the biggest problem, and the U.S. Uh, desperately trying to make sure the Europeans stay uh, on this course of boycotting Russia and substituting liquid gas, uh, the propane variety, for the gas they've been importing from Russia through pipelines from Russia, there's a huge market right now for this liquid gas that can be shipped uh, overseas. And apparently uh, Oman wants to manufacture that. And Iran 
as one of the largest, uh, possibly about the largest, or tied for number one in terms of all uh, gas reserves. So it, it may be a propitious time for this, and uh, it may be a time for Iran mm-hmm. to break out of its isolation. Or It's not really isolated, of course. Iran is, is trading with most of the world, including the biggest countries like China, uh, as well as Russia and, and many others. But it's uh, been hammered by the West uh, and the United States at the direction of the Zionists. But this may be uh, a time to change that. And by breaking out and becoming a, uh, a savvy player in regional diplomacy, building on this relationship with Oman, uh, we could see a, a sea change in the region as other regional powers understand that the future of the region is in independence and autonomy and freedom from Zionism and imperialism. Well, let's take a look at some of the stances taken. And uh, the, one of the most important ones that came out of this uh, meeting, say, Mohsen Abbas, is what uh, Raisi noted about um, dialogue and cooperation, where he said the, remar- the remarkable key point is that dialogue and cooperation among the regional countries creates security, would create security, but the presence of foreign forces would not by any means and could even threaten regional security. Uh, first of all, uh, what do you think about that, and isn't that a direct reference to the U.S.? It is absolutely a direct reference to the U.S. I think Iran has long held that uh, uh, the the West Asia region, uh, or the region surrounding Iran, must become much more autonomous, independent, and not reliant on uh, the United States as the local policeman, which uh, is exactly what, what uh, the, the Arab world has largely facilitated. I mean, they've cooperated and collaborated in their own, if you like, um, you know, their own uh, subordination. And let's not forget that, that Donald Trump, for all his ills, um, he said it very, very plainly. He said, we're here to milk the cow. And he was referring to Saudi Arabia. But of course, that extends to Kuwait, extends to the United Arab Emirates, and all the Gulf, uh, 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 you know, region, really. Uh, and that's exactly what the Americans have been doing and can continue to do. And of course, Israel uh, gets its uh, uh, benefits from from that uh, American boots on the ground, will support you militarily and strategically. What Iran is saying is that, look, we're here to stay. America's going to eventually leave. They don't belong in this region. They belong in uh, uh, in the Americas. But uh, when the oil runs out, when your gas runs out, when they no longer want to milk you as cows, what are they going to do then? Who are you going to turn to? So the reality is that uh, the Arab nations need to think very very deeply about their longer-term interests. And I think Iran has continue, continually offered them a very reasonable alternative, and that is... Uh, it was first of all, I think, in trying to even in uh, President Rouhani's uh, era, where he launched uh, the Hope Initiative uh, in the 74th session in the UN General Assembly. Uh, that almost peace endeavour uh, floundered with uh, a counter, if you like, measure by by the Americans and the Israelis to open up relations with the UAE and to sort of open up more relations with Bahrain, etc., uh, etc. Et the Moroccans too. But of course, this this visit of uh, Amir Abdullahian to, to Oman and meeting Sultan Haytham bin, uh, bin Tariq is, is a, a positive indicator from the Iranian policy perspective in the sense that upgrading those cultural and political um, reactions uh, or, or those relations rather to our higher levels of economic and business cooperation kind of set, they set a pattern and a trend. And it's not an isolated trend because Iran's uh, custom administration spokesman, Ruhollah Latifi, said 
uh, very recently that Iran's trade exchanges with its neighbors from March to December 2021 were valued at 92 million tons in volume and more than 46.2 billion dollars in cash. And that constituted basically an increase of 13 percent in volume and 20 percent, 28 percent in monetary value from the year prior. Uh, now, that also added to that is that uh, Oman uh, has had a 40 percent increase in right. its uh, bilateral trade with Iran uh, during the past year as well. So you can see that uh, Iran is making inroads into creating not only that sense that there should be an independent West Asia, which really relies on its own economic power for itself rather than being milked uh, like a cow, um, as it has been uh, has been done uh, for, the, for maybe six or seven decades or more. Sure. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Kevin Barrett, our guest there, uh, mentioned uh, the uh, HOPE initiative that was actually presented by the Iranian, former, former Iranian President uh, Rouhani at the UNGA. And uh, just uh, made me uh, think about uh, one of the failed initiatives that the U.S. Uh, at one point had proposed years ago, and that was a uh, what we call West Asia, this region, the West Asian uh, Arab NATO. Remember that? How it flopped? It didn't even take off. However, this initiative that Seymour uh, Sanabas talks about is something that actually Oman has taken the lead now on that, insisting on continuing the co cooperation with Iran to provide maritime security and to counter maritime terrorism in the Persian Gulf, the Sea of Oman, and the Strait of Hormuz. So, uh, in that in that light, Oman has taken the lead, and that that is uh, very significant, isn't it? Indeed, yes. This kind of security cooperation with Iran uh, will ultimately be in the interests of other countries in the region as well. These countries currently are uh, experiencing you know, the, the difficulties of being essentially, if not exactly colonized, but certainly client states of a declining empire. And as the U.S. empire continues to decline. This whole notion of an Arab NATO and, and global NATO and so on uh, will seem more and more absurd because obviously what NATO really is, is it's a, a euphemism for the U.S. military occupation of Europe, which began after World War II and never ended. And the rest of the world doesn't particularly want to be occupied by a single unipolar hegemonic empire. Um, there are better ways to ensure global and regional security that can also preserve the autonomy and independence and sovereignty of the nations involved. And, of course, that is what Russia says it's ultimately fighting NATO about. And uh, it's also what China, the rising number two power, espouses. And given the economic changes in the world, as the West's share of global GDP declines precipitously, clearly the future is in these kind of independent uh, regional security arrangements between sovereign nations in a multipolar world, rather than everybody signing up for some super NATO and being occupied by the U.S. military in a unipolar world. That's a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. Looking at the respective countries, which we will take a look at that, say, Mohsen Abbas, uh, one thing that uh, just stands out, preventing uh, security and stability to be established in the region, no matter practically wherever you look at, is Israel. Uh, whether you look at Syria, whether you look at, uh, um, for example, Iraq in terms of Erbil, and, um, of course, with uh, the way that uh, the occupation um, is uh, being exercised with the rise of 
Palestinians uh, being violated on a daily basis. Um, putting that next to the normalization of some of these Arab countries, uh, isn't that the, one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest, to make sure this region is free from uh, outside interference? And, of course, Israel is being steered by the U.S. in some respects. If Israel wasn't in West Asia, uh, there would be peace throughout the region. I have absolutely no doubt about that. The fact that the Americans are there is primarily because they have this kind of bizarre commitment to uh, an illegitimate state, which is essentially committed to expansionism through its Yinon plan, through its peripheral, uh, you know, um, you know, so-called expansion policy as well. Um, these are all uh, givens that the American Congress seems absolutely incapable and, uh, you know, un, un, you know, deterred in terms of trying to uh, change uh, policy-wise. The fact is that uh, big, big, uh, big Zionist capitalist corporate mafias control the bulk of American politics, and unfortunately, that is what dictates. The, the, the situation in the Middle East as it is today. Now, Israel will not stop this expansionism. It's currently more paranoid than it's ever been before, predominantly because the Islamic Republic of Iran has stood tall and has managed to assemble a resistance axis, which is saying no to the oppression of all uh, the oppressed in that region, and particularly uh, the Palestinians. So uh, until Israel can first of all really negotiates its own uh, self-annihilation, um, essentially, uh, there will be no peace in that region because what they're doing is buying up these other uh, proxy states like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, and then they are pushing forward uh, illogical, irrational foreign policies, largely which are, are aimed at uh, securing the interests of Israel, not the interests of Saudi Arabia or the interests of um, the Bahrainis, etc. So, for instance, the war of the Saudis in Yemen uh, does no justice to them. There's no need for them to have that war. They're so wealthy, they hardly need Yemen uh, to become any wealthier. Um, the war, for instance, in Syria, which the Saudis and the, the, the Gulf nations engaged in, was another war that they financed uh, on the say-so of CENTCOM, um, and, and the Israeli sort of, uh, uh, you know, military establishment and uh, the, big, the big boys who want to, you know, dictate the affairs in the region. So everything is wrong about Israel being in the Middle East, just simply from the point of view of, of, of uh, peace, uh, prosperity and, if you like, stability. Islam the Islamic Republic of Iran, by contrast, has not invaded any of these countries, right. not for 200 years, as the, the, have the Iranians stepped outside of their own territories. They've been largely rather invaded. So the same Israeli uh, and American forces uh, imposed an eight-year war on Iran, killed over a million, uh, if you like, uh, soldiers or, or, or citizens one way or another of that region. Uh, since then, they haven't stopped. Iraq, Syria, you know, up even as far as Libya, if you want to count Afghanistan, these are all bordering, mainly sure. they are bordering uh, countries to Iran. And so, of course, that mass chaos and that, that warfare is what Iran is trying to avert for the future with its policies in, in the region now. So, uh, but you have to put this into context for us in terms of uh, uh, how this works out when you have, for example, the UAE, Kevin Barrett, uh, courting uh, the, uh, uh, Syria, uh, just one of the countries, which indicates obviously there's a shift underway when it comes to Syria. 
um, along with uh, Jordan, who has done the same, and Bahrain. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, you know, these are countries that have a relationship or have formalized the relationship, uh, which, by the way, did exist before, but they just came out uh, and formalized it to the world uh, with, with Israel. So how, how does that work out? I mean, uh, when you have them um, reinstating Syria into the fold, so to speak, but yet at the same time have this relationship with Israel. Well, they're, they're trying to play both sides. And that's understandable because we're in a period of shift. Uh, the geopolitics of the region and of the world is uh, moving fairly rapidly, perhaps increasingly so, towards uh, this end of the unipolar American imperial era. And uh, in, the, in, in the West Asian region, I agree completely with the other guests that there would be peace and prosperity absent this illegitimate Zionist entity, which is the root cause of the worst conflicts. And you know, we see how its lawlessness with the assassination of Colonel Hassan Said Hodei uh, the other day on Sunday, and then uh, a couple of weeks ago, the murder of the American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, is these are just you know, two recent examples of this kind of uh, ridiculously lawless, psychopathic behavior from the Zionist entity. So why would these countries uh, like the Emirates uh, and, and some others that are moving towards a more rational and balanced regional policy and uh, openly recognizing Syria, perhaps against the orders of their usual masters in Washington, oh, why, why would they be moving towards uh, friendship with the Zionist entity? Again, I, I think that they are uh, kind of trying to bet on both sides or uh, si situate themselves in such a way that they can draw some sort of profit to themselves uh, and political advantages from their uh, seemingly friendly relations with the Zionists. But we have to remember that the change in the region is towards more uh, independence from the imperial powers and the Zionists who run and own them. And so uh, I think that these people who are uh, you know, betting on uh, profiting from uh, a short period of friendship with the Zionists are also seeing that in the long term, the Zionist entity is likely to uh, go the way of the dinosaurs, and uh, that's why they are simultaneously open to these kinds of regional peace initiatives like we're seeing uh, with Iran and Oman. And, and it's very interesting in terms of uh, Syria. Um, we, we have some more uh, hot spots that we need to talk about, but uh, can't leave this one alone yet, say Mohsen Abbas. And that is um, the fact that you have what happened uh, days ago uh, for the first time with the Russian S-300 missile uh, defense system actually fired shots for the first time, enacted by Russia, uh, towards those fighter jets that uh, uh, had bombed uh, Syria. And uh, there were speculations at this point that uh, that is because of the fact that uh, Israel has uh, supported Ukraine in uh, the special military operation that Russia has done. Uh, can you explain to us how Russia fits now into the picture when it comes to Israel, because Syria remains a country that Israel just continues to bomb, which it did again just a couple of days ago. Well, this has been a bit of a, a thorny issue, but the Russians quite clearly, whilst they came to Syria and supported the Islamic Republic of Iran, Hezbollah, and the, uh, the Syrian government in, if you like, uh, averting the, the collapse of uh, Syria, essentially, and the the occupation of Syria by uh, Zio-American forces, um, they at the same time have been playing a balancing game. Uh, they, have, uh, they have had uh, amicable relations with Israel. The Russians 
have many citizens that uh, actually go and live in Israel itself. There are uh, clear indications uh, that uh, the Israeli establishment goes to and fro and has largely garnered the, uh, the neutrality, at least, of Russia uh, in affairs. And in fact, there was all, also talk of Russia agreeing that they wouldn't use these S-300s. In fact, they wouldn't uh, do anything to prevent uh, Israeli warplanes dominating Syrian airspace. Uh, there seemed to be an informal agreement uh, between all the powers as to who dominated which part of uh, the aerial uh, uh, you know, uh, sectors. Now, one Russian uh, plane was actually shot down accidentally, it seems, or the Israelis played a, a certain game in which they, they shattered in such a way that the Russians weren't able to save one of their, their, their uh, one of their aircraft, and actually several Russians died. That didn't trigger any kind of major response from the Russians. They certainly obviously raised concerns. But what's happening now in Ukraine, it seems as though, again, where Ukraine has a large uh, support uh, from Israel, it also has a lot of Ukrainians who are in Israel as well. It seems as though Israel uh, has been uh, torn between keeping that neutrality with Russia and going in and supporting the, the American and uh, NATO uh, aggressions, essentially, mm -hmm. in, in Ukraine. That's been a choice that it hasn't been able to avoid. And it seems as though uh, some of the exchanges between sure. uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and the, the Israelis have, have got very, very deep. And perhaps this could t see the signal, well, it could signal the Russians taking a more hard line on Israel in West Asia as well, and particularly in Syria. That remains to be seen. Sure. And uh, what remains to be seen, but it seems to be on a positive track, and this could change the, not only the equation on the ground, um, but also the, it's almost like a tectonic shift that's going to happen. And that is the way that Iran and Saudi Arabia have had some uh, degree of rapprochement with each other, uh, they are talking to each other. There has been some progress, um, but it's not there yet. At the same time, Saudi Arabia, uh, not even uh, ha have, the, not only, it doesn't even have a channel of communication open with the U.S. President, Joe Biden. Um, it doesn't even talk to Joe Biden, uh, the uh, Saudi Crown Prince, including the UAE. So um, if, if that remains that way and uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia um, continue and open up uh, embassies, for example, does that mean then that that could be the, the final straw that breaks the camel back in terms of uh, the U.S. not having really the solid footing in the region any longer? Yes, I, I think it would be. I, I think that the, you know, the Saudis have played the key role in maintaining U.S. dominance of the region, and they are the swing oil producer globally. And so their importance, uh, despite the fact that their, their rulers have not always been particularly competent or exemplary, uh, they have played a, an outsized role in the world. And now that suddenly we see them uh, moving out of the American orbit, as indeed the Saudi king had threatened to do in, uh, the, in the summer of 2001, just a, a month before 9-11, he said that the writing is on the wall. He said it's time for, quote, the, the parting of the ways. And, in fact, it was only the false flag operation of 9-11 that allowed the Americans and their Zionist masters to reel Saudi okay. Arabia back into the American orbit. We could see something like that sure. again. And, and uh, if so, it will be good for the region and for the world. I'm sorry to jump in. We're just fresh out of time. Thank you for that, Kevin Barrett, uh, expert in West Asian affairs from Madison. Samuel Abbas, a pleasure from Islamabad, journalist and political analyst. Thank you. And with that, we come to an end for this edition of the Spotlight. From me, Kavitahwe and the team, it's goodbye until next time.
Uh, this afternoon we talk about a U.S. baby formula crisis and what do you know? You need to know in that regard. We have Dr. Kevin Barrett uh, from Veterans Today Editor. Dr. Karen, uh, Kevin, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the program. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good to be back with you. Good to have you with us. Why is there a baby formula shortage in the United States right now? Well, the story we're hearing from the media is that the baby formula industry has become concentrated in the hands of just a couple of huge corporations. And one of them, uh, Abbott Nutrition, had a recall because apparently they had some bacterial contamination from their Michigan factory, which produces half of what they put out, which is a large percentage of what's available in the United States. So that's the story we're hearing, and it may be true. Who knows? Yes. Uh, so uh, in terms of on the ground, uh, you know, has there been an indication as to how it has affected people uh, on the ground? Are people really struggling to purchase uh, baby formula for those who uh, require this for their kids? Yes, apparently it has caused a lot of problems. Uh, it's uneven across the country. In some places, they're not having so much of a problem getting a hold of baby formula, and in others, Apparently, it's really bad, and it seems that the poorer communities are hit the hardest, as usual. And this is pretty serious, because people are so dependent on this product to keep their babies alive. It's not like the toilet paper shortages and the toilet paper hoarding and the runs on the toilet paper uh, shelves that were going on in the early days of COVID, because, of course, uh, well, we don't have to get into the details, but in any case, the baby formula is, is really critical. Uh, for keeping kids alive, uh, which, of course, is unfortunate because the best thing to do is to breastfeed. And it's much healthier uh, for children to be breastfed for up to the first two years, as the Quran actually recommends. And it's, it's really too bad that in modern Western culture and increasingly in Westernized cultures, babies are not given this bonding experience, which is so crucial to their emotional health throughout life, as well as the nutritional advantages, which make them happier and healthier, not just in their infancy, but throughout life if they're breastfed. Instead, here in the West, we have an ideology that tells women that they have to work, and so they rush back to the workforce after they give birth, and their babies, sometimes six weeks old or less, are thrown into daycare and fed this formula manufactured by huge corporations and factories is basically just powdered gunk. And, and that's really tragic. And uh, again, this is a part of this cultural problem that we have in the modern uh, secularized world. Yes, a deep-rooted issue, as you outlined very, very aptly and very, very uh, you know, concise and to the point, and what is at the COVID. Uh, when we look at the Biden administration, is there any word from them uh, how they plan to deal with this? No, not really. I mean, they basically, the Biden administration is preoccupied with throwing tens of billions of dollars at the losing cause over in Ukraine and in whipping up hysteria against Russia that they can probably turn into hysteria against Iran or China or whoever their next enemy will be. And although they give lip service to the well-being of ordinary Americans, it's obvious that that is a, a lower priority for them. And I'm not saying they're worse than previous administrations. All U.S. administrations are captives 
of the corrupt oligarchy that rules the West. And that oligarchy is interested in its own power and profits and keeping its own rentier status, that is, its ability to keep extracting unearned wealth uh, from various kinds of rent, uh, whether taxation, whether uh, oil that, or energy that can be brought uh, up from the ground at a vastly lower price that can be sold, whether through military industrial complex profits that can be jacked vastly beyond the production costs, or whether through printing fiat currency out of nothing and in so many other areas, purchasing housing that people need and then monopolizing it and charging this rent that is getting unearned income for it. The, uh, as Michael Hudson, the great economist, points out, the entire Western oligarchy and, and the, the fake democracy that it puts out uh, for, to hypnotize people, that oligarchy actually runs on unearned wealth and it doesn't care about ordinary people. And in fact, uh, many members of that oligarchy now are Malthusians who want to reduce the population by killing off ordinary people. And so when we see uh, made-in-the-lab COVID uh, killing off exactly the demographic that they want to get rid of, which is poorer people and older useless eaters who aren't economically productive, who are sucking up retirement benefits, and when we see these shortages that are coming online deliberately created by the Western war on Russia that was orchestrated by the Western oligarchy in an attempt to destroy Russia and loot its resources on behalf of that oligarchy, and of course also to try to get rid of these regimes like Russia, China, and Iran that don't allow oligarchies to do whatever they want. The Western oligarchs are really declaring war not just on Russia and China and Iran, but on all of humanity. Yes, certainly. That is at the core of it. And uh, thank you for unpacking that, uh, Dr. Kevin. As always, we appreciate your time on Radio Islam. Shukran for joining us. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. That was Dr. Kevin Barrett. Audhu billahi min shaitani rajeem. Bismillahi rahmani rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin. Abdikur Rasulika Nabilu Miyi wa la alihi wa sahbihi wa salam taslima. Subhana Rabbika Rabbil Azati Amal Yasifun wa salamuna wa mursuleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa la hawla wa la quwata ila billah ila lihim. We're coming into the last days of Ramadan, the final ten days of Ramadan. And that's usually the period that most scholars believe uh, is the time of Laylatul Qadr, the night of power, the night of destiny, when the Quran was first revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the story of that is, of course, well known. He was in retreat, spiritual retreat, in the cave on Mount Hira, and he saw this angel appear uh, on the horizon, and then felt a weight sort of crushing his chest and the command Iqra, recite, which also can mean read. And he said, I can't read. And then he heard that command Iqra three times. And then the last one, it became Iqra bismi rabbika ladi khalaq, khalaq al-insana min alaq, Iqra wa rabbuk al-akram, alladhi allama bil qalam, allam al-insana ma'lam yalam. Read or recite in the name of your Lord, most generous, who created man from a blood clot. Uh, that command to read or to recite was the the Quran kind of coming down all, all at once. Now this happened 
during a period, again, of spiritual retreat. And we all need spiritual retreat at times. The practice of itikath, uh, withdrawing into the masajid during uh, the last days of Ramadan is encouraged. Uh, it's also people sometimes do the 40 days of spiritual retreat, and that's all well and good. And in fact, many people in Western culture kind of can identify with that, with individual spiritual aspiration. But I'm going to suggest that there's actually more to spirituality than just that, and that that actually could provide a clue as to how we can cure mass formation psychosis, because that's the title of the chutzpah today, is the cure for mass formation psychosis. So what is mass formation psychosis? Well, Matthias Desmet is a famous Belgian psychologist who has studied this. And of course, the term, the real academic term actually is just mass formation. The word psychosis has been sort of tacked on by people who think that the world has gone completely mad in the COVID era and now in the uh, Ukraine war era. Mass formation is, is the kind of thing that has been studied in the past in terms of the madness of crowds, the psychology of totalitarianism. And it's a problem when, that, you know, it's, it's this, this totalitarian psychology, mass spreading, contagious totalitarian psychology happens, according to Matthias Desmet, when these four conditions are met. The first condition is when many people are alone and feel isolated. The second is that their lives feel pointless and meaningless. The third is that there are high levels of free-floating anxiety. And then the fourth is that there are also high levels of free-floating frustration and aggression. And when all of these things come together, the isolation, a sense of meaninglessness, anxiety, and frustration and aggression then this mass formation or sort of totalitarian mass psychology breaks out and people go crazy. Uh, and, of course, the COVID dissidents would say that that's kind of what happened when people all went crazy for, uh, let's say, masking and lockdowns and other kinds of COVID containment measures. Uh, some of them, of course, were, were obviously crazy, such as masking on an airplane where the air is completely filtered and where people have their masks off half the time anyway because they're eating and, and drinking. Uh, so anyway, the mass formation psychology has been you know, cited by people like Dr. Robert Malone and other uh, COVID dissidents. And the book by Matthias Desmet that just came out that I hopefully will be discussing with him on my radio show soon, inshallah, it gets deep, more deeply into this, and it describes this historical trajectory by which Western societies have become extremely vulnerable to this mass formation, call it psychosis, call it mass psychosis if you want. Um, that's not what, what Desmond calls it. So why would we have this be a special problem in today's culture? Well, first, think about loneliness and isolation. People are 
probably more lonely and isolated now than ever before. And of course, the COVID scamdemic made that even worse. As people had to be locked up and hiding from everybody else. And if they ever came out and saw any other human being, they would hide their face to do it. So isolation, it's a common problem. In fact, it's been shown that Americans' health is being radically negatively affected by social isolation. There are all sorts of studies that show this, that one of the strongest predictors of health is how many you know fr close friends and people you have in your community, people that you see regularly. So, of course, the COVID lockdowns prevented people from seeing other people regularly and contributed to this. There was a, a famous study of a town in Pennsylvania populated by these Italian immigrants who always hang out together and visit each other and have this really strong community. And they found that there were no heart attacks at all under like age 60, when that was a leading cause of death for people in their 40s and 50s, among other groups. So loneliness and isolation is totally endemic to today's modern Western culture. So individualistic, right? The culture tells you that the only thing worth living for is individual achievement. And so everybody wants to climb the social ladder and the economic ladder and have luxuries and such. And this puts basically all of the rats in the maze are against all the other rats. It's a war of all against all, like Thomas Hobbes wrote about. Uh, and it's red in tooth and claw, emotionally at least. And so people uh, become very, very isolated, lonely. And of course, this has that fourth condition, the frustration and aggression, because people get frustrated because, of course, they never achieve their ultimate highest dreams or whatever. You know, whatever you want to be, there's always somebody who's better at it than you are unless your name is Giannis and what you're doing is basketball. Uh, I'm just throwing out my vote for the MVP. But uh, seriously, though, people who are just competing for individual achievement and isolated from each other are going to have these problems. They're going to feel isolated and they're going to feel frustrated and aggressive. You know, com competition is really all about aggression. Okay, so that's two of these conditions. And how about feeling pointless and meaningless? Life has no meaning, right? Well, that's precisely what this contemporary secular culture tells us. The materialistic secular culture just says that all of the cosmos is a big accident. And, you know, there's that Monty Python routine about this, I think, that does it in a humorous vein. It's so there's no meaning to anything. It's all just totally random. Sheer randomness, you know, drove evolution of, of life. Sheer randomness created the planets and the stars and everything else. And so there's no uh, pattern and no meaning and no purpose. And so the culture actually teaches that. That's kind of the basis of the scientistic ideology. And so then finally, the fourth of these four conditions that have to be met for mass formation psychosis is the, uh, uh, oh, we already got that, the anxiety. We already got the, the, the anxiety is, I think, perhaps partly due to fear of death. There's a, another branch of psychology called the terror management theory that claims that people's levels of free-floating anxiety are proportionate to the extent to which they're thinking about death or trying to repress or forget about their own death. And so anything that reminds people somehow of their own impending death makes them anxious, gives them anxiety. And of course, the secular, modern, materialistic culture is perfect for fostering that kind of anxiety. Because not only does it say that there's no meaning, no purpose, everything's just an accident, but it also says that, hey, you know, when you die, you just rot, and that's it. Uh, or, you know, as a popular t-shirt version of this has it, life sucks and then you die. 
Well, that's quite a philosophy uh, to wear on your T-shirt. But it's also a philosophy that's going to give you all of these problems, free-floating anxiety, frustration, aggression, pointlessness, meaninglessness, loneliness, and isolation. Hey, Western culture has come up with a perfect witch's brew to create mass formation, or call it mass formation psychosis, if you want. So what's the cure for this? Well, Matthias Desmet, I guess, is, uh, you know, he's from the psychoanalytic tradition, and he's uh, kind of, he's still within the Western humanist paradigm. So he's, uh, I haven't finished his book yet, so I probably shouldn't uh, pronounce on what his uh, cure for this is. But I think there's a much more simple and straightforward cure than what he seems to be offering based on what I've read so far in his book. And I'll get to that cure for mass formation psychosis in the second chutbah. So, what's the cure for mass formation psychosis? Well, whatever it is, it would have to address the problem of loneliness and isolation. It would have to address the problem of pointlessness and meaninglessness. It would have to address the problem of free-floating anxiety. And it would have to address the problem of free-floating aggression and frustration. Well, what could possibly do that? My answer, in a nutshell, is, this is the title of another clip I did a while back, spiritual solidarity. We could call it spiritual communitarianism, if you want. Because what I'm talking about is the opposite of the idea that spirituality is always a totally personal individual quest, where you go off into the cave by yourself, you achieve whatever enlightenment you may achieve off by yourself, you're sitting cross-legged in the cave and, ah, the light bulb goes on over your head, and you're sitting there cross-legged and, whoa, you're rising up in the air, wow, you've achieved enlightenment, you're, uh, you're levitating. So this is kind of the... Uh, the caricature of a certain kind of spiritual individualistic practice that we find among certain folks in India, uh, often from the Hindu tradition, where they go off and go into isolation for very long periods. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And indeed, that's what Prophet Muhammad wasallam, did when he went into the cave on Mount Hira. And then he, achieved, he had that revelation come down. And that revelation became the Quran, but, you know, that revelation, that's not just like an individual achieving enlightenment and floating up into the air. That's God revealing as his whole nexus of discourses and practices that can help people live the kinds of lives that they're meant to live. Reveals the purpose of life that provides a way to avoid anxiety, aggression, frustration, that avoids isolation and solves this problem. And for that to happen, this Quranic revelation that came, again came down on the night of power, Laylatul Qadr, which may be coming up this week, it's an odd-numbered night, it's believed, in the final 10 days of Ramadan, that this Quranic revelation was a revelation not just to one person, not just to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu not just to his family and companions uh, and 
radiallahu anhum, and not just to the people in that first community, and not just the people in the second community, not just the Ashaba and, and the Ansar, not just the early Muslims, but everybody. It's actually ultimately uh, a message to everyone, to the humans and the jinn, a message to all the worlds. And perhaps other messages like it in some ways have come down in all of the worlds, or some, many of them. I don't know how many worlds. I don't, I, I don't have a calculator that goes that high. Uh, so this revelation, the Quranic revelation, is a revelation of spiritual solidarity. It says it's not just about one guy going into a cave and achieving enlightenment. It's about God's message to the human community to band together as a community based on spiritual solidarity. That's what the message really says. And that's why the early Muslims quickly formed a spiritual community. And, of course, they were persecuted. All of the truth speakers are persecuted. All of the prophets are persecuted. But that just reinforced the community as it had to band together even more intensely. And that community grew. It made the hijra from Mecca to Medina. It fought a war of self-defense against those who wanted to kill the prophet and exterminate and end that community. It ended up taking over its enemies in Mecca in a nearly bloodless, uh, not even a battle. And it spread. It spread through all sorts of means, ultimately through communication, of course, uh, but political power as well to some extent. And it spread around the world. And people have been forming communities based on this Quranic revelation ever since. And this message, again, is one of spiritual solidarity. It's not a message saying, hey, if you have a spiritual vocation, maybe you can be a priest or a monk. You know, maybe you can go to church or go to your whatever your practice is on, on Sunday or on Saturday or one day a week and then just live a secular life the rest of the time and not worry about the spiritual stuff. That's for the professionals. That's for the Pope and, and the bishops. That's for the, uh, the, the Hindu uh, master or uh, the guru or whatever. No, it's for everybody equally. It's not like some people, you know, very few people have this great spiritual vocation. Others don't. Well, sure, it's, I'm sure it's true that people have differing levels of capacities and gifts for spiritual things, just like for everything else, right? Not everybody is a basketball genius. Not everybody is a physics genius. Uh, people have wildly different talents in all sorts of different ways. However, spiritual aspiration is the purpose of life for everybody, period. No exceptions, none whatsoever. Once you realize that, and you realize that that has to be the basis of human community, then you, you see the genius of Islam, which, which does this. It creates that spiritual basis of community, and it has for its entire history. It's under assault today. This Western, ultra-individualistic, materialistic, scientistic, progressivist paradigm, this secular paradigm, is really being pushed by people with massive power and money. And these people with the massive power and money, these oligarchs, these people 
are the people who have a gift for uh, competing with their fellow humans in, in wealth and social status and power. Unfortunately, the people with that gift are, for the most part, psychopaths. So we're living under a pathocracy. We're living under the rule of psychopaths. And naturally, these psychopaths want to promote the social system that works for them. So they promote liberalism, which means total freedom for billionaires and psychopaths to grab as much power as they want and do any darn thing they want. They promote atheism because that's what they think makes sense. Because, hey, you know, I'm self-made. I'm just doing this. There's no meaning. There's, I don't want God or anybody to be telling me not to be grabbing this wealth and power uh, and doing any darn thing that pleases me and, and grabbing pleasure through all sorts of immoral means. No, I, I don't want anyone to stop me. So I'd rather be an atheist. So these, these psychopaths in power have promoted the liberal, materialistic, progressivist ideology that empowers them. And that's the world we're living in. And so the Islamic world is on the defensive. It has been for a century, century or two. But it still has that secret of spiritual solidarity. Right now during Ramadan, all over the world, maybe a billion and a half to two billion people are fasting throughout the entire day, not having even a drop of water from the first light of dawn until sundown, not having a slightest morsel of food from the first drop uh, for first first uh, light of dawn until sundown, that's a pretty intense practice, and nearly you know one and a half to two billion people are doing this together. We fast together. We don't just go off into a cave and fast as an individual seeking spiritual enlightenment on an individual basis. No, I mean yeah, you can do that if you want. But no, everybody fasts because spirituality is the purpose of life. Being a better person is the purpose of life. Allah says that we have created you, you know, as to uh, compete in goodness, uh, to see which of you has the most piety or taqwa. Uh, that's the purpose of life. And so getting, climbing that ladder of piety and taqwa and goodness is the purpose of life for everybody. That's why everybody fasts. Islam says everybody fasts. Quran puts that injunction on everybody. Well, yeah, if you have a physical issue that prevents you from fasting, that's fine. But basically, anybody who doesn't have that kind of serious physical issue has to fast. Likewise, we pray. It's actually mandatory to pray the five times daily prayers, and for uh, for men at least, it depends on your law school, I guess, to pray the Jumrah prayer on Friday. Everybody prays together. We gather together here in the Jumrah prayer, just like we gather together in the Eid prayers in these large groups and that togetherness, that spiritual solidarity, that community, that spiritual communitarianism, or whatever you want to call it, that togetherness in that shared aspiration to become a better person and to foster each other's spiritual development and knowing that that is the only purpose of life and knowing that that is the only sane basis for society is the whole key to everything, including solving this problem and curing mass formation psychosis, which is in fact just a symptom of a deeply sick and degenerate culture that needs to come back to God, and the simple straight path back to God is the Sirat al-Mustaqim, the straight path of Islam. So if you're lucky enough to be living somewhere where there is a Muslim community and you want to join a, a community that's based on spiritual aspirations, that's based on shared encouragement of each other's spiritual growth, you should go check out that Islamic community near you. You should go down to the masjid, the mosque. You should try uh, the five times daily prayer 
It's a little it takes a little practice to learn how to do it. You don't have to formally convert to go to the mosque and participate in the prayer. You could do that a few times first, or as many times as you want, before you finally take the shahada and testify that there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. At that point, you've entered into Islam, and you're a part of that spiritual community, and you've just given yourself a huge boost in terms of avoiding the problems that lead to mass formation psychosis, the isolation, loneliness, feelings of pointlessness and meaninglessness, the free-floating anxiety, and the uh, aggression and frustration. And, I mean, I wish I could say that Muslim communities had been so immune to mass formation psychosis that they totally not only refused to participate in the COVID madness and the, you know, the post-9-11 madness and the current uh, Ukraine madness, Unfortunately, it's not entirely true. In the West, a whole lot of Muslims have basically gotten uh, West-toxicated, as the Iranians say, or uh, acculturated into the culture of mass formation psychosis, the Western culture of individualism, materialism, and atheism. Uh, they've just kind of absorbed some of that by osmosis, and so they have not stood up as strongly as they need to do to stand against the causes of mass formation psychosis, against the wave of mass formation psychosis that's sweeping over the world but they should, and I think overall the Muslims have done a little better, just like that there's a, a book out uh, called uh, Muslims, uh, The Most Civilized But Not Enough uh, by Dr. Javed Jamil that uses all sorts of statistics and sociology and so on, uh, all sorts of numbers crunching to show that overall Muslims are doing better on the key social indicators. They're less lonely, they're less isolated, they're healthier. Uh, they have lower levels of, of suicide and crime and sexual diseases and single-parent families and uh, all of these kinds of negative social indicators, alcoholism, of course, much uh, considerably lower in Muslim communities. And the more that the people are practicing Muslims, praying together, praying five times a day, praying together on Fridays, uh, fasting for Ramadan, of course, which almost all nominal Muslims do, uh, the more they're practicing the more immune they are to these negative social indicators and the more immune they are to mass formation psychosis. So that's the, uh, the takeaway here is that the cure for mass formation psychosis is spiritual solidarity and the most straightforward practice of spiritual solidarity is the one revealed in the Quran uh, and that's the, that's the straight path. However, let me also say that if you're Christian uh, or of, of another religion, you too can, of course, participate to some extent in spiritual solidarity. Those Italian immigrants in that town in Pennsylvania that didn't have any heart attacks, they were all Catholics. They all got, went to church. They're practicing spiritual solidarity too. Church-going people are practicing the kind of spiritual solidarity when they celebrate religious holidays in a genuinely religious way, which is unfortunately kind of rare here in the United States. Uh, that's a kind of practice of spiritual solidarity, as they remind each other to uh, that God is watching us, uh, that you should be the best you can be, as they try, uh, as they try sincerely to imitate their uh, prophet and model, uh, Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, or Jesus Christ, uh, peace upon him. They're also practicing a kind of spiritual solidarity too, and I think that in these end times, we Muslims need to develop our spiritual solidarity with the Christians, especially if we're living in nominally Christian countries, or I guess post-Christian countries. This should be one of the biggest efforts that we make as Muslims now, is to reach out to the Christian community uh, and 
give them that message of spiritual solidarity, talk about Islam and spiritual solidarity, and, and urge them to practice it too. And then we can join together because we have so much in common as well. Uh, as the Quran famously says, that you will surely find the most intensive people in animosity towards the believers to be the Jews and those who associate others with Allah, that is the, the mushrikeen. You'll find the nearest of them in affection to the believers, those who say we are Christians. Um, so that, that's uh, those who say, in uh, in the Nasara, those who say that we are Christians. And so our spiritual solidarity as Muslims, I believe, should extend to the true Christians. And, you know, different scholars like Sheikh Imran Hussein have different ideas about who the true Christians really are in this time, but I think there are probably some of them everywhere. It's not just the those in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but probably people in all sorts of these different Christian schools that have all broken up and gone in all these different directions. You know, they need spiritual solidarity too. The whole Christian world does too. And maybe Islam can actually help. Uh, and maybe when the Christians recognize the truth of the Quranic message, even if they continue to follow Sayyidina Isa or Jesus as their main prophet, maybe that will be the moment that they can come back together in spiritual solidarity, inshallah. I don't know. But we humans, we're here for, the, for that spiritual solidarity, which is, again, the cure for mass formation psychosis. So um, Allah, please uh, help us to enhance and preserve our spiritual solidarity. Allah, please save us from all these ills of the modern secular atheist world, these ills of loneliness and isolation and pointlessness and meaninglessness and anxiety and frustration and aggression. Ya Allah, please bless us with uh, the togetherness that we need to ward these off. Ya Allah, please uh, help us to spread your message of spiritual solidarity and, and to intensify the faith and practice of our fellow Muslims and to reach out with the truth about Islam to those who are not yet uh, walking the straight path of Islam. Ya Allah, uh, please bring our Muslim people together and bless and protect us and bring us back together as one healthy body. Mm -hmm.